I've never been that great at following a map. I mean, I'm not being metaphorical here. I mean, literally, when I'd go hiking or I tried orienteering and I'd have this big ungainly sheet of paper with, you know, contour lines and mysterious symbols and the like, and I had a compass and I was trying to make that point north, you know, I just struggled to put it all together. The one and only time I did a solo hike back in Australia I literally wandered off the path 10 minutes into the journey and then spent an entire day trying to find my way back. And we've all got phones now, so the physical journeys are easier. But navigating the world, well, that's as tricky as ever. There's rarely a map, there's rarely a compass. Often what we need is a guide. So who's your hero, your mentor, your guide for how you navigate the world? Whose playbook? Do you follow? Lots of us might pick a kind, gentle type of guide, you know, a Brene Brown or a James Clear or a Pema Chodron, maybe something from the classics, maybe one of the Stoic philosophers. But who these days would pick the scheming politics of Niccolo Machiavelli, author of the infamous guide to politics, The Prince? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Stacey Vanek-Smith is an author, a journalist, and she's also the co-host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. She's also on a mission to rehabilitate Machiavelli. Now, Stacey grew up on her parents' cattle ranch in Idaho, but perhaps like Elton John singing Honky Cat, says he wasn't going to stay on the farm. I love books. Um, I wanted to be a professor. Uh, I went to uh, Princeton for college, and I majored in comp lit, and I just knew that I wanted to be a lit professor. That was the thing I wanted to do. So she does nothing in half measures. Comp lit means looking at literature from other cultures. So she moved to France, enrolled in a master's program in French literature. But when she discussed her studies with her advisor, well, things took a bit of a left-hand turn. I really wanted to study the period right after the French Revolution. People were very decadent. It was called the Thermidor reaction from where we get lobster Thermidor, um, which is like cream and lobster and is a, it's a pretty good metaphor for the time, actually. And my professor was like, that's way too general. Like, you could think about studying the fabric of the clothes that they used. And I was, I remember just being like, oh, man. In the meantime, the, cop, the magazine I was copy editing for, someone dropped out. A, a reporter dropped out. They were supposed to be writing an article about Luxembourg Gardens, just like a my trip to the Luxembourg Gardens. So the editor assigned it to me out of desperation. Stacey threw herself into that article. I mean, the editor expected maybe 250 words, a fluffy piece about, I don't know, rose-flavored ice cream and beautiful fountains. That is entirely what she did not get. I did all this research. I interviewed the beekeeper. I interviewed the guy who trimmed the trees. I looked up the history of it. There was, of course, because it's Paris, like, the revolutionaries used to gather in this corner of the park, and there's a statue of Balzac in this corner of the park, and there's a model of the Statue of Liberty in this corner. I mean, I would wake up thinking about this really mundane article about the park. So basically, she wrote a book on the Luxembourg Gardens. But this experience sparked something in Stacey, who 
was otherwise facing the proposition of writing a very specific, very granular thesis on old French clothing. And then I was like, why is the thing that I'm doing to earn money the thing that I'm more excited about than the thing I'm trying to earn money to support? And so I moved back to the U.S. and I went back to Idaho and moved back in with my parents, which was, you know, very humbling experience. I started working for the Idaho Statesman as a copy editor and I went on from there. But I just knew I had like a direction at that point. You know, it takes real courage to abandon something that you've thought of for years as your path through life. Study literature, become a professor. It was clear. It was simple. And it wasn't enough. Which brings us both to Stacey's new book, Machiavelli for Women, and the link it has to the book she chose to read from today. I always, there was this moment in the book that I always thought about. And when I was writing Machiavelli for Women, so there's, there's history about Machiavelli in the book. Yeah. There's also, I did a lot of research about the pay gap, the promotion gap, getting interrupted, harassment, negotiating, all of these things. I talked to a lot of women and I was trying to synthesize all this information in a way that would not like seem depressing or weird or I, I really also wanted the book to be funny and compassionate and readable. Right. Uh, and I kept thinking of how Proust can change your life because he does something pretty extraordinary in the book, which is he synthesizes just a lot of scholarship and information and he presents it in such a warm, inviting, mm. readable way that stuck with me for years. I mean, yeah. 1997 was a while ago and I loved the it's book when I read yeah. it, but I've read a lot of books since then. Yeah. And this was the one that kept coming into my mind when I thought about the tone that I wanted in my book to have, nice. like what I wanted to aspire to in terms of what lightness, lightness and rigor by the sound of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I wanted it to be uh, very deeply researched, but also readable. I wanted to synthesize the information in a way that wasn't like, I've worked really hard, everyone. You know, I wanted <laughs> yeah, it to exactly. be like, here's here's like my here's my best conclusion from the work that I've done. Beautiful. And I really think he achieves that in such a brilliant, easy, with an ease, you know, I just I really yeah. admire his writing. And uh, which two pages have you chosen? I have chosen. Uh, it's pages 46 and 47 of the vintage copy. Beautiful. And, and why these two? Well, I mean, initially, this, these were just the, this was the set part of the book that I remembered. Yeah, yeah. Um, the part of the book I thought about so many times and I'll, and that I had thought about in terms of like writing for podcasts where like details are so mm. important. That's how you bring a scene to life. You know, right. you're like, I walked into the store, like they're blue bottles on the shelf with little orange caps and a black cat running behind the cereal boxes. It's like those little things that will yeah. bring a scene to life. And so I've always thought about this point, but when I was rereading it for, for your show, uh, and I did reread this book as I was writing, as I was getting going on the writing for my book. I, I bought the book and, and reread it, but this yeah. was the section that, and then I, then I was thinking about why I picked it. And I think there's a more profound reason for like why I remembered it, but I will Stop nice. talking. We'll talk about that. All right. Well, let me do a, a little introduction. Stacey Vanek-Smith, author of the wonderful new book, Machiavelli for Women, reading Alain de Botton's book, How Proust, Proust, How Proust Can Change Your Life. Stacey, over to you. So just to set this up a little bit, um, mm. it, this starts out with a diary entry from this man, 
uh, Harold Nicholson, who's just a young diplomat who runs into Proust at a party and makes this note about Proust in his diary. In his diary, Nicholson reported of the party, quote, a swell affair. Proust was white, unshaven, grubby, slip-faced. He asked me questions. Will I please tell him how the committees work? I say, well, we generally meet at 10. There are secretaries behind. Mais non, mais non, vous allez trop vite. Recommencez, sorry, there's a lot of French in here. <laughs> Recommencez, vous prenez la voiture à la délégation, vous descendez au quai d'Orsay, vous montez l'escalier. So the guy says, like, well, we, we generally meet at 10. There are secretaries behind. And Proust says, no, 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 you're going too fast. Start again. You take a car from the delegation. You go down to the Quai d'Orsay. You walk up the stairs. You enter the room. And then, précisez, mon cher, précisez, precisely, my dear, precisely. So I told him everything. The sham cordiality of it all, the handshakes, the maps, the rustle of papers, the tea in the next room, the macaroons. He listens enthralled, interrupting from time to time. Mais précisez, mon cher monsieur, n'allez pas trop vite. N'allez pas trop vite is don't go too fast. It might be a Proustian slogan, n'allez pas trop vite. And an advantage of not going by too fast is that the world has a chance of becoming more interesting in the process. For Nicholson, an early morning that had summed up, been summed up by the terse statement, well, we generally meet at 10, had been explained to reveal handshakes and maps, rustling papers and macaroons, the macaroon acting as a useful symbol in its seductive sweetness of what gets noticed when we don't go by trovite. Less greedily, more importantly, going by slowly may entail greater sympathy. We are being a good deal more sympathetic to the disturbed Mr. Van Blarenberg in writing an extended meditation on his crime than in muttering crazy and turning the page. And expansion brings similar benefits to non-criminal activity. <laughs> Proust's narrator spends an unusual number of pages of the novel describing a painful indecision. He doesn't know whether to propose marriage to his girlfriend, Albertine, whom he sometimes thinks he couldn't live without, and at other times is certain he never wants to see again. The problem could be resumed in under two seconds by a skilled contestant from the All England Summarized Proust competition. Young man unsure whether or not to propose marriage. Though not as brief as this, the letter the narrator one day receives from his mother expresses his marriage dilemma in terms that make his previous copious analysis look shamefully exaggerated. After reading it, the narrator tells himself, quote, I've been dreaming. The matter's quite simple. I am an indecisive young man, and it is a case of one of those marriages where it takes time to find out whether it will happen or not. There is nothing in this peculiar to Albertine. Simple accounts are not without their pleasures. Suddenly, we are just insecure, homesick, settling in, facing up to death, or afraid of letting go. It can be soothing to identify with a description of a problem which makes a previous assessment look needlessly complicated. But it usually isn't. A moment after reading the letter, the narrator reconsiders and realizes that there must be more to his story with Albertine than his mother had suggested. And so once again, sides with length with the hundreds of pages he has devoted to charting every shift in his relation with Albertine. N'allez pas trop vite. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and thanks for reading the French as well. Makes it well, show just feel that much more sophisticated. Well, and I try to be as sophisticated <laughs> as possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I forgot there was so much French in it, but it's it is it is in service of a really beautiful idea. It, it I think. is. 
And what is that beautiful idea for you? For me, I mean, for a long time, the reason that I would think about that paragraph again and again is is that in my job in writing long-form podcasts, which are basically like a magazine feature, mm. it is the little details that bring things to life. Yeah. And I think that make you a good reporter, noticing mm-hmm. things, you know, noticing some the shift in someone's voice when they're talking about something. It's you. Right. That's how you find a story. That's how you find the heart of a story is by noticing things. You do have to slow down and focus entirely, which is one of the things I love about reporting. It focuses you and it forces you to not go so fast. You list, have to listen so intensely. Um, and. Looking at it now, I think the thing that I love about it is, I mean, I also think that idea is very beautiful, but also the idea of how things are a little, how there's beauty and complication. Mm. I think there is an incredible, especially now, right? I mean, listen, I'm as guilty as everybody else. Social media, everything gets summed up in like what 180 characters. You want a headline. We're scrolling. It's just like, you know, there's that wonderful phrase in business, bottom line me. Yeah. I feel that way all the time. I'm a very impatient person. Um, but the, You're not and I good think, with change. You're very impatient. Why I'm am I even talking to you? I don't know. <laughs> but I've got to go. No. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I think there's there's a temptation now to say like complicate, like, oh, no, but this is really simple. We love mm. black and white. As humans, and I think also culturally right now in the U.S., we yeah. love black and white. It's like, well, sure. this is evil. This is good. Subtlety. There's, you know, we have like in certain ways, I think, less and less room for subtlety. Yeah. And I think the idea that there is something important about the fact mm. that things aren't generalizable always, you know, that people are particular cases. I think it yeah. does open up. I mean, he mentions it briefly, but it does open up compassion and empathy and it's a lot harder to just slot someone into like, oh, you're like an anti-vaxxer or, oh, yeah. you're one of those people who X. Yeah. Uh, therefore, I don't have to consider you. Therefore, I can make all these assumptions about you. And I think there's something really beautiful and very, very important about the idea that that complicating something is maybe like one of the keys to our own humanity and to recognizing the humanity in each other, that it's not so simple. Yeah. So, see, how do you practice sitting with the ambiguity and messiness that comes with searching out the complexity of things because it is as you say so much faster and easier just to kind of sum it up (laughs) and 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 dismiss it like we're done and and you're inviting us to think a different way of how we show up Um, how do you what's the disciplines you have that allow you to do that well this is funny um my family's super conservative. I grew up in Idaho. My family is very, very conservative. They are Republicans. Mm-hmm. They voted for Trump. Uh, I am definitely the weirdo in the family. Um, You're the black sheep of the cattle ranch. I'm the black sheep. It's true. It is very true. <laughs> and it forced me. I mean, my family's also like my my parents, especially very well read. They're very like informed. It's not a lack of information. They have just come to conclusions that I don't like conclusions that are different from the ones I've come to. Mm. And for a long time, it was very hard for me to go home because my dad loves debate and I hate Uh. arguing, hate it. (laughs) So it was just like, it was really, I mean, it it was like sometimes a really hard thing, you know, like my family would 
be like, oh, so what do you think of like Obama's take on education? Like it was like I felt like I was getting I was getting baited. Yeah. Right. I was like it, yeah. it was like an interesting sport. And I had to think about how to handle it because I love my family. I wanted to see them. And so I remember reading a book. I can't believe this. I hope my parents don't hear this. <laughs> I read a book <laughs> on compassionate listening. Like the like I'd... it was like this Buddhist practice of compassionate <laughs> listening. Uh, and I read it like as a survival guide to Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> um, and it actually I mean, the, the practice is very similar to being a good reporter, I think, because mm. in radio, you can't make any noise when people are talking, right? You can't do some of the things you normally do, like say, oh, right, uh-huh. You can't interrupt people. You just have to listen silently. And it's a very powerful practice. And so I just started employing that practice with my family and just mm. being like, why do you think that? That's so interesting. What about this? And just talking to them, because I hope that when I talk to interview people for the radio, that I also can bring that. Like, oh, that's interesting. So so what is it about the vaccine that makes you nervous? Or, you know, and, yeah. and instead of just being like, oh, I get it. Um, and so I had to do it. I had to <laughs> go into the subtlety of it. And you know what? Like, people have reasons for things. And it's not yeah. just that they're, like, evil or – but, you yeah. know, I think just the – I was forced into a situation where I have to interact with people I love very much and disagree with very strongly. And right. – I had to do it in a way that was sustainable. So that kind of that really speaks to that for me, um, mm. just that you you allow people the complexity of their own experiences and points of view and the conclusions they draw from it. How does that generosity and kind of willingness to connect to the humanity of the other person, how does that connect with some of the strategies and the insights you bring to your new book? Oh, very much so. Um, it was important to me <laughs> that, I mean, it's I'm just laughing because my, I know Machiavelli's reputation is like, and right. he really does advocate like killing people and stuff in the book. And like, you have to kill their kids and their whole family too. I mean, you know, I'm, this, yeah, I mean, if you're going to kill not, somebody, you may as well kill the rest of them. You got to kill, mean, you got to like, go big. Um, yeah. And he makes a good point about why too. He's like, listen, you don't want to leave people who are angry at you plotting right. and you know, luckily in the modern workplace, as many flaws as it has, uh, murder is generally off the table. So well, exactly, and if it's murder, then it's not then patricide and fratricide and the rest of the the kind right. of killings. It's just it, a single assassination. It's not the Borgia so it's, it's okay. situation. It's yeah, just exactly. you know, it's it's like whatever Roy from accounting. Um, <laughs> but I think what I tried to do was, in fact, my whole approach to negotiating is to not have it be a conference. Like, it doesn't have to be an aggressive activity. It does not have mm. to be high noon, right? Yeah. Because in general, and this was a revelation to me because I am terrible at negotiating. Terrible. Uniquely terrible at it. I get so anxious <laughs> and everything. Uh, statistically speaking, I'm in the majority, so that made me feel better. But yes. one of the things that I think I went into was this idea that it was a zero-sum game, you know, mm. that, like, if I get what I want, you lose, and if you get what you want, I lose. Right. And that is actually not true. It's just, mm. like, you know, so what the approach I recommended was, uh, and I got this from uh, Dr. Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon, who's done 30 years of negotiating research and is amazing, and especially has studied the approaches that work for women because people have different expectations of women and men and different reactions to women and right. men when they ask for things often. Um, and what she recommended was think of 10 things you want, not just I want $10,000 more dollars. Like, OK, 
great. And what else do you want? You want a bigger office? You want Fridays mm-hmm. working from home? Like start to think about it in a more holistic way. Yep. What would make you happy at work? And then when you go in to talk to your boss or whatever, and also do a lot of homework so you know what like your colleague Jerry is making yeah, like and how much experience is. he has mm-hmm. and what like Kelly makes at the competitive firm across the street. So you, you've got all this. You have your information, which is very grounding. Yeah. And you know the things you want. And then you go in and you're like, listen, um, you paint a picture. What I advise is painting a picture of a future that you want together with the company. Just because I'm so excited about the work that I'm doing here. I really see that I'm growing in this way. And, you know, you think about what they want to. And I know that, like, together we can create X. Like, I really feel Mm. like we can grow. Like, I always think of media. Like, together we can grow this podcast. I really think I'm seeing so many, like, so much potential for, like, a really diverse, inclusive audience that can be really big. I think we can help people and like paint a picture of the vision and like, listen, um, I know that Jerry is making more than I am right now and that's not really sitting right with me. I want to feel really good about this job and, and moving forward in this job. I, I think I, you know, I'm going to need to get paid in a way that I feel good about in order to move forward. And, and that is whatever, $85,000 instead of $75,000 or whatever it is. I mean, Machiavelli, as you said at the, earlier on, is really about understanding power in, in a way that is kind of, this is how power works on a day-to-day basis in reality. Particularly, as you say, you're a, you're a new prince, not an inheriting prince, which, as you say, is a nice metaphor for perhaps how women are showing up in the workplace. Do women need to think about power differently than men typically do? In my experience, yes. And that is a big generalization. But I think I think maybe we all should think about power a little differently, honestly. <laughs> I, like I think the way we tend to think about power in the U.S. is just very sort of swashbuckling, aggressive. You know, it's like whatever Clint Eastwood in his poncho, you know, asking how many bullets you think he fired. <laughs> or it's whatever Gordon Gecko talking into two foot. These are very dated references that I'm pulling out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, people with like giant machine guns and like rippling muscles, standing on cars, blowing people away and flamethrowers. And I mean, right, I think right. that's how we tend to think about power. Power. I actually looked up. the. This is so this is like a cheesy wedding toast. But I looked up the pa- word power for this book because Machiavelli right. talks about it so much. And the root is it's power, which comes from to be able. Mm. Um, and at its heart, I think that is what power is to be able to have agency, right? Right, right. To be, and a lot of historically, what is characterized being a woman has been not being able. You can't own property. You can't have a credit card. You right. can't smoke. You can't drive. You can't X, Y, Z. Um, and I think that is what not only women want in the workplace, but really what we all want. We want to be able. I mean, yes, yeah. there's a category of like wanting control over other people, but I think that's different than power. Yeah. Um, I think in, a, of course, very new agey way that power comes from inside of us. Mm. Um, I think power over others, domination is different. And pe- a lot of people want that, too. But what I'm addressing in the book is is different. It's. It's a, I guess, a more holistic power. How do we deal with kind of the structural imbalances that, you know, even if you're like going, okay, find your inner Machiavelli and claim your agency, it's still easier for some people like me, straight, white, tall dude. Well, to tall's big, claim- it's true. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, 
It is. I mean, there's that research that says every inch you are over six foot, you basically earn an extra two hundred thousand dollars over your lifetime. I mean, it's a oh, ridiculous. That's fantastic. I need to start wearing it, heels or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And be a man. <laughs> and you, and you that might, that's more complicated, but I'm with you. <laughs> it's more complicated, but it's worth it. Um, uh, do you have insights around um, kind of from Machiavelli or from your research connecting Machiavelli and power around the structural inequities that women in as, as one group have to face? I mean, it's all about the structural and systemic mm -hmm. problems. Um, and, you know, you see it in the data. Take the pay gap. That's one we hear about a lot. Women earn about generally 80 cents in the U.S., about 80 cents on the dollar what a man earns. Right. Black women, 65 cents. Um, Latina and Native women, 55 cents on the dollar. I mean, it's Great. big. That's all. And it's structural. It's not evil yeah. people thwarting. It's people making assumptions, probably well, a lot of well-meaning people making assumptions. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of this probably has to be addressed on a policy level. Um, mm. But my book is not dealing with policy level. I wanted right. to give advice to individuals. So one of Machiavelli's big themes is uh, look at the situation you're in clearly and how to deal with it. And that right. is deceptively simple advice. Uh, and he said, you know, a lot right. of princes lost their kingdoms because they could not make a change when their circumstances changed. Like when mm. circumstances change around you, look at it, see what's going on and act accordingly. To take emotion out of that sounds easy. It is so hard. It's so hard for me when you see something that's unjust. But you're just like, OK, my workplace tends to pay women more than or men more than women or white people more than people of color. OK, like I am mm -hmm. a woman of color. So what do I do? OK, well, you you say, OK, like how much do I want to get paid? And then you go about going into a negotiation to get paid that way. You do the right. homework that you have to do. I mean, you have to put in extra effort is the yep. is the short yeah. answer, I guess. Um, you know, Randy from accounting might be able to just get offered that salary Randy. when he starts. <sighs> Randy, I know. He's the worst. <laughs> um, but but I also think that there is there's real value in having to make that effort. Um, mm -hmm. Machiavelli makes the point that um, those who acquire with difficulty keep with ease – um, and that, I mean, I can rattle that quote off because I've thought about it so many times, Yeah. um, that there is a gift in having to fight for things, which is that when circumstances change, you have all the skills to adapt. Yeah. Um, and that can be harder if stuff just gets handed to you and then the circumstances change. You're like, Hey, wait a minute. Like what happened? I mean, and we've all been in situations where stuff's been handed to us big or small, mm -hmm. right? Like whatever, from Costco samples to executive jobs. And, you know, for Machiavelli, it's like if you have to fight to get something, it gives yeah. you a gift. Yeah. How has your own sense of agency shifted since you started writing and finished writing the book? It's mm. <sighs> a good question. It's more complicated when it's you. <laughs> 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 you know, Um I feel like, you know, it's the way that like you can like someone comes to you for advice and you're like, oh, please. Yeah, take, like, take my advice. I'm not using it. <laughs> it's so easy. But but the reason that it's easy to give other people advice is that you have that removal automatically. Right. Mm. That Machiavellian removal. It's so much harder when it's you because people are like you need to go ask for a raise. It's like, yeah, but this is just like a really bad time because um, <laughs> yeah. but I just feel like like next month. I'll have, like, oh, my God. Um <laughs> I think the thing that it has, the gift that it has given me 
in terms of agency is that mm. I think I'm able to step back from things a little bit more, that I don't mm. react as like I don't have sort of the same maybe knee jerk reactions I used to. And I yeah. I think from doing all this research, I know it's systemic. I know that right. a lot of these issues are systemic and it's not and I don't have to be angry about it or angry at people. Not that I'm not still don't get angry sometimes. I definitely do. But but that it's just it's just the world we're in right now. And it's also changed a lot. It was also very helpful to see how much things have changed um, yeah. to see that progress is like a wonderful thing. And to talk to so many women for the book, including like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was very thrilling. Uh, also, the yeah. woman who wrote Crazy Rich Asians, Adele Lim, um, who walked away from the sequels because she was they offered her an eighth of the money they offered her male co-writer. Um, mm. I just feel like I have a lot more context. It doesn't feel the world doesn't feel as small because sometimes like right. when you're experiencing discrimination, you can feel very small and helpless and yeah. scared. Um, I feel when you talk to like Janet Yellen and she's like, oh, yeah, there were no female economists. It really I felt really held back. I felt really isolated. It's like Janet Yellen felt isolated. <laughs> oh, well, I guess right. this is like a, you feel it expands the world a little bit in mm. a way that that does, I think, help with agency. So she has been a wonderful conversation. As a final question, perhaps, um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? What needs to be said? I think for all the ladies and all the people <laughs> who have struggled with, you know, feelings of worth and negotiating, which maybe just mm. be all humans, uh, is that I guess it's not I, I just it's I, there was enormous relief to me in in realizing that some of this stuff was systemic, that mm. like uh, one of the things that I looked into, which is from Dr. Linda Babcock's research, was that women tend to negotiate way less than men, like a fifth. A fifth yeah. as much. And it sort of sort of feels like, oh, it's my fault. I should negotiate more. I really, this is really on me. And then the more I looked into the research, the more I realized like, oh, it's it's a lot more complicated. Like there's often right. backlash to women when they uh, ask for more. It often doesn't work. So you're looking, you know, if you're sort of your rational self is looking at a situation where the downside is certain and the upside is not. And so you make a call. And sometimes that call is actually better for you in the long run. So I think it helped me kind of release a lot of the sort of anger at myself, and you know, mm. where it's like, I should, why can't I just be, I should be What's tougher. wrong with me? I'm What's an informed, intelligent, educated woman. I should be doing better at this. I should know better. I know, but yeah. I'm researching, I'm researching negotiating. <laughs> why can't I swagger into my boss's office with all my info? I know I've been researching this for a year. Um and it's just like, it's a little more complex. Like, I guess to get back to Alan de Botton, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think there's great wisdom and relief in the fact that it is more complicated than that. It's not so simple. It can be so difficult to be an advocate for your own needs, your own wants, your own ambitions. I mean, however reasonable those might be from the outside, on the inside, in your own head, there's always some degree of imposter syndrome, confused counter-arguments. And for many of us, for me, it's certainly a sense of, look, if I just work hard and be a good person, I'll get what I deserve. I'm taking away a mental lesson here from my conversation with Stacey, which is to start thinking of myself as a prince. 
Okay, well, perhaps not a prince, but maybe the prince, Machiavelli's prince. The power of this is I get out of my own head, my own subjective experience, and I start seeing myself objectively. You know, what should Michael be doing here? What's the bold move for Michael? What's Michael worth? Seeing myself as a piece on the board in a game I'm playing is liberating. I mean, it's not the truth, of course, but it is a perspective that can be empowering. Now, if you dug this conversation, enjoyed it between Stacey and me, after you've told somebody else in your life how awesome it is and passed the word along, let me recommend a couple of other episodes you might enjoy. Check out my conversation with Oliver Berkman, How to Get to Grips with Reality. He's got a brand new book out in the world as well. And also my chat with Ashley Good, which is entitled Transformed by Failure. For more on Stacey, you can find her website, stacyvanicksmith, or one word, .com. Um, and you'll find details of her book, Machiavelli for Women, there. And you can find an extremely large body of work on NPR. And she's there in the social media world as well on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter under Stacey Vanek Smith. Thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you here with me as part of the Two Pages podcast. If you want a little bit more, there is a free membership site called the Do Comfries. You can get transcripts, you can get downloads, you can get unreleased episodes. Thank you for those of you who've already left reviews and stars and the like on your favorite podcast app. I certainly appreciate that. If you haven't done that yet, please do. I'd be grateful. And just as a reminder, you are awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>